So I really, really like this interview. Now, I like all of them just because my ego is beyond massive, but I like this interview specifically because of how honest Cyrus is about how complicated gender is. Gender is not black and white for anyone, trans or not, and I really appreciate that Cyrus is still figuring it out and he's cool with that. I think we need more examples of people like Cyrus who are not at the quote-unquote end of their gender journey, people who don't have all the answers. So that is what you'll hear today. And then you'll also hear us talking about his new book that is called A Year Without a Name, and it is out right now. From Luminary Media, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A. One of the things that your book did for me was that it really recontextualized and made clear that dysphoria is not only this binary trans thing. I think that it really is easy for people to make that assumption that it's only for, um, you know, like trans men and trans women. Mm -hmm. Do you find that? I do. And I also think, I mean, this is such a huge point of conflict in the so-called trans movement, you know, I think increasingly, especially in a younger generation, we see this presence on the internet of young binary identified trans people who assert that the only way to be a transgender person is to experience a really specific type of dysphoria, which is then treated with medical intervention. And increasingly, it's understood as if there's this divide between non-binary people who are taking a sort of cultural stance against binary gender and then transgender people who have a very specific experience of not identifying with their assigned gender, but identifying with the other gender. And I'm not one to undermine anybody's felt experience of who they are because it's it's what people feel. My experience, and so the one I'm trying to write through is one that's a lot muddier. And I think in a lot of ways, it was easier for me in the cultural position I'm in, with the friends I have, with the books I've read, with the work I do, to accept that I had an intellectual, cultural, that I wanted to reject the construction of binary gender, that was easier for me to accept than the ways in which I had always really hated my own body and wanted it to be different. I think a lot of what I was working through in the book was this feeling that like, if I was stronger, I wouldn't need to go through the process of medical intervention, that I would be able to intellectualize and will myself into being like, I'm not a man and I'm not a woman, and it doesn't matter what my body is, you know? And do you think that came from pressure and stigma from like the trans community itself? I mean, it's so confusing because there's pressure and there's stigma within queer community. And then there's also just like the pervasive weight of cis heteropatriarchy. <laughs> and sometimes I don't know which one is affecting me sure. and which one is impacting the way I see myself. I'm trying to think like in all those years and moments in my life when I was trying to convince myself that I didn't need to start hormones or that I didn't need to get top surgery or that I didn't need to change my name. I'm trying to imagine and remember who the audience that I was picturing was. And sometimes it was like non-binary identified friends who... I wanted to show them that I could kind of transform myself through my own thinking. But sometimes it was also my parents and being like, actually, I think my parents will be able to accept more easily that I have this intellectual position around binary gender 
then that I want to shift and transform my own body. So the audience sort of shifted. I also think that through your writing, it wasn't, it appeared not to um, exclusively be an intellectual decision. You know, it, right. like I was really moved by the visceral response that you had to like f to choosing the name Cyrus. Mm -hmm. I was not expecting that. I wasn't either at all. <laughs> when I started writing this book, all I knew was that I wanted to document a period of a lot of change, but I didn't know I was going to change my name. I didn't know I was going to get surgery. I was certain that I wouldn't go on hormones. I would say to myself all the time, like, I'm never going to be someone who goes on hormones. That's just not me. It was something I rehearsed constantly. And yet you did all those three things. It, all of them. And I might not be done, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And I, I really like your question about dysphoria. And it, it's something I've thought a lot about because starting hormones and sort of like parenthesis, masculinizing my appearance has lessened my dysphoria in a lot of ways. But a lot of my experience of dysphoria is something that extends beyond gender. And it has a lot to do, I think, with just like trying to find an experience and a sense of identity that is grounded and resonant within a world and a society where there's so many expectations for how we're supposed to be. And I think that at its core, so many people, whether they identify as trans or not, can identify with dysphoria insofar as it is a disconnect between how you feel and how you are perceived and the alienation that stems from that disconnect. Yeah, I mean, I've wondered for a while, we've moved the trans discourse away from bodies and um, away from the body and body parts and surgeries. And yet I also, a part of me wonders if the way to connect with non-trans people is to bring it back to the body. Totally. Because everyone can relate to that. And we hold so much information and feeling and non-verbal intuition in our bodies. And I mean, this sounds very woo-woo and we are in Los Angeles, so, you know, I'll go with it. But a huge part of my process of transitioning for me has just been about grounding, getting back into my body, feeling my heels, feeling my legs, feeling that I am this like brief experience of cells that's going to be here for a little and then go away and just feeling myself on earth because I think dysphoria makes it really hard to stay in the body. And so many people struggle with chronic dissociation for so many reasons, whether it's exhaustion, overworking, trauma. Like body weight. Exactly, exactly. And there's so much about our world that isn't built around us feeling our own bodies. And I wonder how much of that is accentuated with like social media. Oh, everybody's spending so much of their time in this immaterial landscape. Out of their body. Yeah. I didn't have social media for a long time. And then like two months ago, in anticipation of my book coming out, I was like, I'll, I'll get Instagram for a few months. And I try to be really like moderate about it. So I'll download it if I need to make a post and then delete it again. But the days that I have it on my phone, which is usually like one day a week or something, I have a completely different experience of my own embodiment. And I notice that so much more of my energy is in my head and in this space of like these visualized thoughts, imagining people and people's opinions who I'm not having a material interaction with. It really just takes me out of my core in a way. It's like you and I, even though 
it's so strange because we're recording something right now that will probably have a life on the internet, but we're getting to have an actual felt experience of meeting one another as like two embodied beings. I sound so woo-woo right now. I hope you're- I'm following so far. (laughs) I'll I'll, like kick you when it's too much. And that is just such a different way to encounter a person, you know? You also wrote that you are hesitant to call your dysphoria dysphoria. Do you still feel like that? I think I feel more comfortable, but I also really appreciate getting to frame it the way we are as something that's not just about gender. Like, sometimes I think that my dysphoria is mostly in relation to gender, but sometimes I think it's also mostly in relation to having to be an individual in a culture and a society that's built so intensely around individualism rather than feeling myself as like a deeply interconnected part of like a larger system of living things, which is a really, really specific to the world we live in now. Like if we'd been born in different cultures at different times, we might not have had to think of ourselves as these discrete entities in the way that we do now. I mean, that goes to something that I appreciate in your book, which is that you, your experience with gender and how your gender, it was affected by who you were in a relationship with. Mm. And because, you know, intellectually, we know that gender and sexuality are different things. I think we make a mistake by only talking about them separately when they're so intimately intertwined. Totally. And it was so important for me when I first learned this concept that gender and sexuality are different. But then I also was like, is there something wrong with me that they don't feel separate? (laughs) When did you write the book and how long did it take to write it? I was working on it for like two years. So during this period when you are figuring out your gender, for lack Mm -hmm. of better words. Did you not worry that it was always in relation to somebody you're dating and not like, what is my gender like when I'm alone in a room, just me? I was worried about it constantly. Okay, sorry. And I know I appreciate you getting right to the heart of the matter. It's hard if you're writing a book and it's a memoir and you're writing it as your life unfolds before you, not to let your wishes for the book start to affect your wishes for your own life. Because the book and my life started to kind of bleed into one another. And I had this dream that I would, at the end of the book, I would be not so dependent on other people to reflect back my gender identity at me. So I'm not going to give away the end of the book, but that it didn't, it didn't work out like that. But I really wanted to reach some place where I was more kind of autonomous and self-determining. And, and I think I had, I have to accept that maybe that's just not who I am. But I think that what was so amazing about writing was that it really gave me an excuse to center myself and go into myself in a way that I'd had trouble doing in the past. And so much of the process of writing this book was letting myself use language to kind of work through my fantasy of who I might be. Like if I just let my natural gestures come out, if I just dressed myself how I wanted to, if I just moved through the day in the way that felt most intuitive to me, what would that look like? So there was a lot of moments of private fantasy. And I think a lot of the moments where I clicked into a version of my own gender that I really wanted to move towards were really small things like, you know, cleaning the house, going on a walk by myself, driving in my car. And I really wanted to try to focus on those sort of more quiet moments too. And you do present more masculine. Do you find that you're able to access male privilege? 
good question. <laughs> you know, it's it's really trippy to be perceived as a different gender. <laughs> I know that sound that's like a stoner thought, but it is profound to have spent 26 years of my life being read as a white woman and now be read as a young white man. It takes shape in a lot of different ways. Are you able to describe what it feels like just as someone who has experienced like the other end of the spectrum? Totally. One thing I'm really interested in and aware of is that, you know, I developed a lot of interpersonal habits that had to do with being read as a as a woman and specifically a, a white woman that had a lot to do with like manners, certain types of people pleasing, really focusing on other people and always trying to make sure that other people's needs were met. And of course, it's not like if you start presenting with a different gender, everything that you've developed over 25 years is just going to fade away. So what's interesting is to see the way that people react to a lot of my interpersonal habits now that I take up space differently. And I think that people have a lot of fear around masculinity. So I notice that sometimes like this place that I go to of being super conscientious and, and attentive and focused and kind can be read with more suspicion or like can be perceived as something that might be like the precursor to manipulation, like, or like a f type of smarmy charisma, or th this is my fear. This is my paranoia. It's not just kindness for the sake of kindness. It's, yeah, it's, it's just read differently. Interesting. Um, and that could just be my paranoia that I'm projecting onto other people, you know? And I also think like a lot of people have a lot of trauma that's connected to white masculinity for very good reason. And we know that like how systemic violence works is that it's enacted through individual people and then individual people become markers of trauma. And then other people who look like those people function as symbols. So I think I'm also really aware of like how it's almost like I can take up the same shape and the same outline as a type of person who's caused people a lot of harm. And I feel really aware of that. And it feels like a lot of, it feels really like heavy to carry. I feel a lot of like carefulness or trepidation in my body and in a lot of my actions because I'm really aware of myself as a potential trigger or like a potential symbol. And then another thing that's really interesting is like being read as a masculine person, but also because of a lot of my mannerisms, like being read as a more effeminate masculine person or like a faggy masculine person. Oh, that's interesting. Because like, sure, my voice dropped, but I still have certain speech patterns that developed in certain ways. I still hold my body in certain ways. So a lot of times I think when people see gender nonconformity, it's like they don't totally understand what shape it's taking. So I've also had a lot of experiences, I think of like, a certain type of negativity or fear that has to do with not me seeming like a woman who is trying to be a man, but me seeming like a man who is failing to do masculinity in the proper way. That's fascinating. So because you're presenting masculine, when I said you present masculine, you give me a look. Is that Oh, no, no. I, okay. I, I mean, I choose, that's how I, okay. like I, I, most, most of, most people in my life use he pronouns. Anyway. Oh, do they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Do you have a preference? I like he. It's I, I feel really good about it. It's kind of like thrilling and scary and erotic, but I really like it. I mean, I when we had to go to press on the book, it was too scary for me to switch the bio to he, so it says they. But um, I like he, yeah. I, I noticed the they on the back of the book. 
Um, I actually don't know how you identify gender-wise. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I don't really know. <laughs> I'm like, I identify, I guess, in like a deep soul way. I definitely identify as non-binary, but I also know that I've had a transmasculine experience and increasingly when I meet people, they experience me as a man. So that's something that I think I'm like transmasculine and non-binary and also maybe like forever a lesbian. I don't know. <laughs> So all that makes sense because to me, it is the um, mirror opposite of one of the people I love, which is a Kate Bornstein. Yeah. She's non-binary and she presents very femme. Totally. And she's like, no, this is the body. This is a presentation I love, but like, this is my gender also. Totally, totally. And I think that we, as we learn more about like trans and non-binary identities, we can like get into that nuance more. Yeah. And, and the fact that you can hold all of these seemingly contradictory identities and they actually don't cancel each other out. You said you sold this like lesbian inside of you. <laughs> that sounds dirty. Um, yeah, I know. But, <laughs> so, let her Lesbian out. lurking inside of me. Are you primarily attracted to women? Most of the people that I've been with in recent history are non-binary gotcha. identified. And I think as a young person, as a young lesbian, as a closeted lesbian, I mean, I was obsessed with girls and women as a teenager, like deep, obsessive, all-consuming love. And that hung in my life with like so much larger than a feeling that I was meant to be a boy. So I just assumed I was a lesbian woman. Although in my fantasy life, I always imagined, I could never imagine myself with the girls and women who I was obsessed with. I always imagined a boy with them, but I couldn't make the leap to think that boy is me. I was like, I just imagined this kind of like silhouette of a young man who was in love with and and intimate with whoever I was obsessed with at the time. And I think like as I've gotten older and started to peel back all the layers of oppression, I've started to wonder, is it that I was attracted to women so intensely or is it that I so deeply wanted to feel like a boy and those relationships were the space, like that relation made it possible for me to feel masculine, you know? And and since I've started to present more and more masculine and start hormones, I've, my desire patterns, and I think this happens to many people, have shifted and I've started being attracted to a much wider range of gender presentations. And, and I ask that because I, I think it's like so funny that here's this person who used to identify as a lesbian and now they're like transmasculine, non-binary, but they're being perceived, as you said, a fag. Right, right, right. Like that is just like very like funny, all these like identity groups that like you've got crossed into. I know. And it's a whole new world. It's like grinder, just it's everything's new. <laughs> it's all it's like a whole yeah. new it's like and so I mean, so many people in my life have had this experience of sh shifting their presentation and suddenly it's like you go through this portal and there's all these other forms of intimacy intimacy that are imaginable. But I guess you didn't expect to like land on like the twink territory. Oh my god, no. I was at uh Akbar the other night. Yeah. Um, and this older guy was just like circling, 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 circling me. And my friend was like, we call that a chicken hawk. Do you know that term? No. <laughs> like a hawk circling a chicken. <laughs> like I just, it had, it really hadn't occurred to me that this new type of attention that I would be the recipient of. Because I think a lot of people see me and just think like, you know, prime, prime 18 year old me. <laughs> like not like... <laughs> That's fascinating. It's really interesting. And there's a whole different code, you know. There's such a different, there's like such a different code of um, like what is acceptable and what boundaries look like. I feel like in you, I mean, maybe you tell me, I also don't know what you identify as. 
uh, queer, gay, um, yeah. all the about faggot. <laughs> yeah, well, there's like um, I feel like in faggot territory, there is such like a there's so many different yeah norms of boundaries and like what type of attention is boundary crossing and yeah and like the more I just get older and like yeah. meet more people, the more I have like crushes across people across a gender spectrum. Totally. So that's why I like queer because like it acknowledges that and like lets me still be gay. Totally. Totally. Probably like three years ago, I told you that like my sexuality was like beyond rigid. Right. And now I'm like, oh, that, I think probably people, everyone thinks that. What shifted for you? That's a fantastic question. I think it was probably befriending more trans and like non-conforming people. Yeah. Um, and just like getting to know trans mm-hmm. people um, on like an intimate level. I think also like going out with like trans men who were gay and I was gay and that didn't, that didn't affect my sexuality. Totally. You know, but it also changes something because like, um, their body is like, um, not, it's not like conformed to historical gender norms. Yeah, and so totally. like that does break something I think inside of you. And um, if you don't like run away from that, then like you see how like, oh, this girl that I'm obsessed with who has a shaved head, like, oh, I actually have a crush on her. Yeah, you're, you're like, that's what that is. Yeah. yeah. And then like, to me, like, to me, it was like a girl, a girl with a shaved head. It was like the entry point. And from there, it's like anybody with a shaved head. <laughs> <laughs> Gender you are. person on earth with a shaved head. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if this is pansexual, but it's something. Maybe, yeah. I'm probably going to end up with a guy, you know, yeah. at the end of it. Um, but that could be, a, that but can be so many different things. It can be so many things. Um, but like, I'm open to like other things um, more so than ever. When I was maybe like four or five years ago, I was in New York with my friend Tourmaline and she took me to get my tarot read at Flawless Sabrina's house. Yeah. It was before Flawless passed. And she was reading my tarot and she said this thing. I don't know if she said it a lot, but it really stuck with me where she was like reading my tarot and she just looked up at me. And before she got into the actual tarot, she goes, all the best men are women, <laughs> which I loved and really like stayed with me in this deep way. I love that. Um, and then a few years ago, or two years ago, I went to an acupuncturist in in New York with the person I was in a relationship with at the time. And he was like a much older guy who probably hadn't really like learned that much about, um, you know, like the young gender language. And he just looked at me and he was like, mm, yeah, you're a man woman. <laughs> and then he was like, you have a lot of emotional problems from being a man woman. And I was like, so true. Like, like, <laughs> and You're those like are things. Sir. Yeah, like those are not PC things to say, but in those moments, I felt so deeply seen and understood. Because it, it's like I know I'm a man to the world, and I kind of want to be a man, but I also will always be a woman. And so I guess I'm just a man woman. <laughs> I think that like the queer community and specifically the trans community has a massive divide, and like how we'll talk about gender publicly versus privately. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like when I'm hanging out with like friends and they're trans, it's like the things we say, like I could like never repeat on this podcast. I know I'm that's, but I feel so comfortable with you. So I'm worried I'm crossing the public private divide. You have not yet. <laughs> okay, good. I'll take that. We can move off it actually. No, I like talking about it. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we're just, it feels like we're just two people hanging out. So it's hard to remember that it's like an outward facing thing. But I think I wish there was more, It's interesting the point you raise because when people are fighting so hard to prove that transness is real, there's a really specific political line that we have to toe, which is this constant iteration of like, 
trans women are women, trans men are men. And that's such an important thing to articulate amidst a world of people who literally think that trans people are either fake or monsters. But there's something that's also lost in that, which is all of the hilarity and the complexity and the wildness that we use to describe ourselves to one another when we don't have to prove that we're real. I totally agree. And you also asked me what changed for me with my attraction. I, It was when like three to four years ago, I stopped being obsessed with being a masculine version of myself and like my own gender and gender performance. And that's what like broke my attraction as well. Because I think that like when we talk about this like mask for mask culture, it's like, well, yes, you've told us that like masculine is like the key to power. Mm. So how could I not be attracted to that also? Of course. But um, I think that our like sexual desire is like so tricky to talk about. I know. (laughs) I don't even know where to start. So have you let your so-called like femininity out more, you feel, in the last few years? I have. I've become more comfortable with that. I'm also wildly aware of how intoxicating male privilege is. I I almost think of it as a drug and I have, um, not always, but I have access to it, you know? Uh, what is it? This is maybe going to sound please. weird coming from me, but what does it feel like? Like I'm only a year into people reading me as a man. Yeah. So there's a lot that I don't understand. And like, I'm tr- I don't know if I always know how to locate when I'm experiencing so-called male privilege because it's so weird and scary and new for me. I feel it the strongest when I'm alone in an unsafe environment. So I'm walking down the street and we're in downtown LA right now. And there's a part of the street that is probably not the safest part of town to get to precinct, you know, a gay bar. And I feel comfortable walking down that street and like putting my shoulders back and I'm not walking like, like the twink that I used to be. Yeah. I'm from the South and like growing up there, I used to feel like the feminine side of me was um, not respected, didn't command respect. And I now feel like I can access that respect sometimes like um, with... Um, dropping my voice more. Yeah, yeah. And then also just like business-wise, um, I see the way that women and femme people, um, their ideas are undervalued. Mm-hmm. And I have changed how I communicate in meetings mm-hmm. to like access the more masculine side of me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like my ideas are heard more. Okay. Yeah, but um, it's it makes me like... It shines a new light for me on uh, my friends who are trans women because I'm like, oh, you gave up all that. Yeah. And because you're a woman. But like, I think it's it's not a small feat to give that up. Mm. It's really scary. Yeah, it seems really s- scary. I felt it's interesting because it's not it's not the same at all. But I'm like, I had so much fear about giving up being a cis white woman, which is something I've had trouble talking about, I think, with people because I'm like, that's not the narrative. But And I think it's really specific to maybe the world that I grew up in, which was a world like very shaped by whiteness and very shaped by class privilege, where there was also sort of like this watered down train of thought rooted in second wave feminism, where there was like this, I feel like I was very much fed this belief that as a woman... I was supposed to and entitled to accrue as much power as I wanted to like make up for, you know, centuries of 
um, gender oppression. <laughs> you felt that. Yeah, I really felt that. And I'm saying this is super specific to the milieu I grew up in. Obviously, that's not a universal experience of womanhood. But I was like, I'm supposed to get to the top, you know? And like, that was really the message. I feel like I was fed in my education and in my environment to become this like strong woman. And for me, moving away from womanhood, and this is just about like, this is not something I'm putting on culture at large, it's about my process and my journey. But for me, moving away from letting go of womanhood was also about letting go of loyalty to a really specific set of cultural rules and starting to actually question what power means, what success means, what value looks like. Um, because the, being in like a masculine body, I can't tell myself that story in the same way um, that like I'm supposed to get everything. Um, and I think that's really been really important for me because it undercuts that feeling of entitlement. Um, and again, I think it's really connected. I mean, I think that's really connected to being a white woman and the ways in which white women both are like at the this boundary of being told about the ways in which they have been harmed and denied certain forms of access, but then also have a ton of power. That maybe sometimes can be really hard to feel and access because of just how potent gender violence is. But it's very confusing when gender violence coincides with so much inherited power, racial power, you know. Absolutely. I mean, you, you're talking about like how you grew up in your specific environment. Your father told you that being a woman was divine that women were superior to other people. Um, he even went so far as to tell you that sometimes he wished he was a woman. That is such like an interesting thing to tell one's daughter. Like what was yeah. your reaction to that? I think I was just like, I guess men are awful and women are better than men. And you your know? father knows that? <laughs> yeah. He was always like, I'm so glad I don't have a son, you know, which is interesting. I don't know if he, I mean, I don't think he feels like he has a son. I think he feels like he has a child who is like a funny, strange being. Um, Did you crossing over this gender line, you think have any impact on his feelings on gender? I think it has. I think, I mean, I think for both of my parents, it's made them have to really look at the questions they didn't ask themselves and the things that they accepted and that everyone around them accepted because they didn't have access to another way of looking at things. You know, your sister, for those who don't know, is Lena Dunham. And when she became the Lena Dunham that we know, a part of your relationship with her and your family was put up for public consumption. Did you have any reservations about publishing this book and doing that to people in your own life? Reservations would be such a massive understatement that I don't even know if it's the right word. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've always, I also, I love writing. Like, I've always wanted to be a writer. I always knew that I wanted to write books. That was, like, a, my dream since I was a kid. I think you had a chat book with poetry that yeah, I read yeah. many years ago. Yeah, and I mean, I've, it's just never not been something that I did, you know? So there was, I think when my sister first got famous, I was like, I'm not going to write. I'm not going to share my writing with the world. I just can't deal with the weight of that, like, microscope, telescope. I was like, I'll share my writing with my friends. I'll do political journalism. And then at a certain point, I was like, am I also supposed to just not 
do the writing that I want to do because of this. And I don't know the answer. You know, there's so many ways I could have written this book. I could have just sent it to all my friends. I could have just self-published it like I did with my poetry book and kept it in a much smaller field and had a much smaller platform. And, you know, sometimes we make decisions because they seem like the best decision at a certain point in time. And then we're still dealing with them a few years later. And I made the decision to do this. And now I'm going to see what it feels like. How much of a factor was that decision that we have so few trans narratives in the world? I think that I have a pretty strong feeling that as much as I want more and more young people to know that they can reject cis gender identity, I don't know if I'm the most, I don't think I'm the most important person to tell that story. Oh, why not? I think because of a lot of stuff having to do with like most people who will go through gender transitions in their life are not white people from famous families who grew up with a ton of access. And so I honestly think there's, I hope that things within it will make people feel less lonely and like there's more space for them. But I also know that so much of what trans and gender non-conforming people face and this really specific type of violence and state violence is stuff that I've been protected from. I think that's really self-aware, but I think that we have so many narratives about trans people that are violent, that we do yeah. need ones of more accepting families. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, what I told myself was like, I'm only gonna do this if I'm also gonna look at my gender in relation to all of these other systems of power, like my whiteness, like my family, if I'm going to be honest about the ways that it's gotten wrapped up with questions of fame and visibility. And I was able to tell myself like more so, I wish that there had been more narratives that were when I was younger that I had read that were people from similar, that by people from similar backgrounds to me who were really trying to think about what it means to try to negotiate systems of power. That's something I, that felt, I was like, I'm not going to tell this story and not go I'm not going to pretend that that's not a part of my experience. I'm glad you didn't do that. And I'm, <laughs> I'm also glad that you kept in the messy bits. Yeah. Like it's not a clean resolution at the end yeah. about like, and now I'm Cyrus. You know? Yeah. Can I ask you a question that um, I don't mean to sound rude? Yeah. No, please. <laughs> um, uh, the book is written by Cyrus Grace Denham. Did you include the grace in there like for marketing purposes? Such an important question. Um, it was, I, I had no idea what, yeah, it was really difficult to figure out what to do. Cause when I started writing this book and agreed to the book, I, I mean, I wrote a legal contract under the name Grace Dunham that I would write a book, oh. you know, like I got, I had a book deal. Um, so I'd written a third of the book and then I signed a contract saying I would write a book and then I changed my name to Cyrus. So there were all these difficult kind of legal questions. Um, and at first I was really adamant. I was like, I'm going to publish it under Cyrus and then a different last name that is another last name I use that I don't want to share on this radio show. Um, and then I was like, no, I'm not going to use my special secret last name because that's mine. Like, I don't want to share that with the world. Um, and then I thought a lot about what to do. And I think ultimately what I decided 
and I think this did come from within me rather not like the pressures of marketing. Cause I don't, I mean, maybe this is delusional, but like the name Grace Dunham isn't, I hadn't done that much public stuff under that name. It had just existed in this really specific way in the media in conjunction with some like narratives that I had not consented to being shared with the world. Um, but I wanted, like I did start the book being named Grace and I did end the book being named Cyrus and both of those people are real and both of those people were authors and they're both legitimate authors and I kind of, something felt right about trying to kind of smush them together and not, like I could have gone back through the book and undone the presence of Grace but I think there's also, I will say there's really specific narratives around transness and name changing and this idea of like the dead name. And that is so real. And I deeply relate to that impulse. But I had always sort of been interested in this, I, this idea that like, it's a word that can, can't be spoken. Um, and something that I found in the writing process was that Grace was almost like a name that I have a lot of love and tenderness for, even if she isn't who I choose to be in this moment. Like it's, I hold her and that name very dear to me. And I kind of wanted to dem to, to, to work with that. And I, I, it's not something I had necessarily seen so much in writing and it's something I wanted to explore. It's a nice way to honor that part of you. And yeah, and I mean, I don't think that Grace is gonna stay a part of my name. You know, it's not, but in this, this very strange specific process, which I will never go through again, of writing a book over the course of my own gender transition, I was like, this feels right for this instance. So book number two will just be by Cyrus Dunham, uh, most likely. I, I don't know if we're even gonna get Cyrus Dunham again, but <laughs> something else. Something else we may not, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know what, what book number two will be, what it will look like, what shape it will take and who will write it. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Um, I think that's an amazing place to leave it. Thank you so much for the amazing conversation. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks. That was Cyrus Grace Dunham. His new book is called A Year Without a Name and it's out right now. And then if you've not yet subscribed, please do so. Next week, we'll be back with one of my favorite drag queens, Eureka O'Hara. I think it's a side of her that you've not yet heard. So stay tuned for that. Until then, come find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. That's a great way to stay connected and to recommend guests. I love hearing from you each week. We are brought to you by Luminary Media, Neon Hum Media, and The Advocate. The Advocate magazine is the world's leading LGBTQ news source. Come check out our website at advocate.com. LGBTQ and A is produced by Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Stafford, John Asante, Jordan Gosperay, and myself with sound engineering by Mark Bush. We'll see you next week.